episode 189 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today's guest on the podcast is Hilary Davidson, whose Don't Look Down, her second crime fiction novel featuring NYPD detective Sharon Sterling and her partner Rafael Mendoza, has just been published. Welcome, Hilary. Hi, Nancy. Thanks so much for having me back. Oh, I, are you kidding? I am delighted. <laughs> um, I was intrigued by how Don't Look Down opened. Uh, before Sharon is called to the crime scene, which will become the case in the book, she's called to a police station. Not her station, but the one where her teenage son has been taken after being arrested. I thought this was a powerful scene in how it demonstrated, without being in any way heavy-handed, both the racial realities in policing and the politics of a large urban police force. So I was wondering, was that, am I reading too much into this? No, not at all. And I feel like this is a conversation. I mean, this is something that's important to talk about in fiction, but this is a conversation that the whole country needs to be, you know, having right now. And I think maybe we're at least starting to have it with people focusing on not just the stop and frisk policies that we had in New York for so long, but kind of the legacy of those policies where, um, you know, kids were you know, stopped by the police and first. Now, the book takes place after that era. And so that's not the situation Sharon's um, son found himself in. He was actually participating in a legal protest um, of the work of ICE agents. Basically, uh, there are protest zones where you're allowed to protest in. But if you step out of that or block a sidewalk or just sort of put a foot in the wrong place, you can actually be arrested. And so he was arrested basically um, just sort of for holding up a sign at a protest. And it's it's sort of a, a devastating thing for Sharon, on a few levels, as a parent, you know, she's worried about her son and his safety. But also, um, it's sort of the first time I think anyone sees her feeling disrespected as a cop, that when she goes to that station, the officer that she deals with is really um, kind of harassing her. Like, why would the son of a cop be protesting the work of federal agents? And he kind of hammers that home. And she's sort of forced to be as kind of... um, polite and uh, calm about it as possible because she knows that if she were to say something to this guy that he could make the situation worse. But, you know, it's it's a real situation because one of the things that I've found with, um, you know, I've done, I've had so many conversations with people who work in law enforcement is that there's this interesting divide between what you do on the job and what can happen um, to members of your family. Or in one case of an officer I talked to, um, he was someone who was a cop, he was black, but off the job, he had been stopped by other cops, um, you know, from a department he had nothing to do with. But the way that you're treated when you're out of uniform can be a world away from how you're treated when you're in uniform. And I just, I really wanted to sort of um, get a little bit into that complexity because for any cop, I mean, it's it's a it's a tough job, and I fully fully cognizant of that. But I think when you really look at the racial aspect and how unequal um, the justice system is in this country for so many people, it's kind of a really uh, it's it's something we really need to address and really need to explore. And we should mention that uh, Sharon Sterling is African American, so uh, and that 
and and I found the way she dealt with this particular uh, police officer at this station that wasn't hers was she went to sort of politics and connections. She knew somebody he knew, and that's how she diffused the situation, which I think is is um, was an interesting way of doing it and sort of, to me, very, very real. Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, in that world, she tries a couple of other things first. She sort of tries appealing to the humanity of the cop and sort of, you know, well, you know, my son's really involved in our church and in the leadership program and, you know, helping immigrants is an issue that we talk about. And none of that has any traction with this guy. And it really comes down to, oh, hey, you're actually in this society with my former partner. And it's one of those things like, oh, suddenly you're part of the club. And like, oh, well, oh, then I then I know you. Oh, you're you're this person's partner. OK, well, I respect that. And I, I mean, it's it's kind of an ugly reality, but it's the way that so many things happen in the world. And I think maybe in this time that we're living in, we're becoming wise to seeing that we're actually seeing those connections and seeing how people use their connections doesn't mean you're a bad person to use them. You can see in this situation that people can be forced to kind of play that card. So after this, uh, we've sort of been reintroduced to Sharon, uh, the two investigators, uh, Sharon and, uh, is it Raph or Rafe? Uh, Raph, Raphael Mendoza, but Raph for short. Raph are they're back on a new uh, case, and um, and it what I found was in one small sacrifice, the first book in this series, it sort of took a while before Sharon acknowledged that things might not be as they seem. But in Don't Look Down, this book, uh, she gets that spidey sense that all is not uh, as it seems pretty early on. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say maybe the difference there is that in One Small Sacrifice, um, she had experience from a year before with the suspect in the case. She already knew the guy. Um, She had worked on another case involving that guy, another death. And so she had strong suspicions based on that case in the past. In this case, she's kind of coming to it cold, where she doesn't know anything about the um, the woman who's the suspect at the center of the case, doesn't know anything about this man who's been found shot dead in his apartment. And so, um, you know, for her, she's looking at everything in a very fresh way. And so um, she is the one person who looks at this crime scene, which... Um, and this isn't spoilery. In chapter one, you see a woman named Joe Griever going to meet with her blackmailer. And the end of that chapter ends with them shooting at each other. So, um, you know, spoiler alert, there is one dead body then in that apartment afterwards. And when the police get there, all of the signs point to it being the blackmailer. Uh, the man even has Joe Griever's business card in his pocket. There are photographs of Joe in the apartment. Uh, there was a neighbor across the street who saw her Uh, Joe running down the fire escape. Um, There's, you know, there's forensic evidence. Basically, everything sort of looks like it's pretty clear what happened here. Um, But there are things that Sharon notices that, that don't quite fit. And she really can't let that go. One of the ways I'd say that she's really consistent in the two books is that she is relentless. And so if she, um, 
has strong, you know, have strong feelings, a strong suspicion that something is wrong, she will hunt that down, even if everyone else disagrees with her, even if they say, no, let this go, look, everything else fits. She really is a kind of tenacious, dedicated person who won't let that go. Well, my feeling about this particular story, which is very, very diabolical, by the way, we won't introduce <laughs> any spoilers. But take that is, as a compliment. Yes, no, 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 it is meant as a compliment. It's deliciously diabolical. Um, I, I just, I felt that, that the story kind of spun out from the characters. So in addition to Sharon and Raph, who's a gay man, married gay man, married to a man, uh, there's Joe, who you mentioned, who uh, has struggled to keep a, her horrendous upbringing, you know, firmly in the past. Her right. boyfriend Cal, who's from a family to the manor born that his fam, that his father took down in flames when the father right. went to prison. Um, Cal's mother, who, in spite of her fall from the pinnacle, is an insufferable snob who distrusts <laughs> Joe. And yeah. Annette, who's the longtime family friend to Cal and his mother who has retained her wealth and place in society and is an angel investor in Joe's fledgling cosmetics company. And so this is like a delightfully toxic stew of uh, socioeconomic currents. And, and like I said, it, to me, the, the, the diabolical plot just makes it um, uh, really, really delicious. And, and I, I don't mean that in a strange way, but is that, I is, am I right? Or, or, or did, did the plot come first and the characters get plugged in or which way did it go? No. And I, I feel like you're probably intuitively picking up on this, that for me, the characters always come first. And so when I started writing the book, I actually had this really strong sense already of who Joe was, of what her history was, um, what her relationship with her boyfriend, Cal, was like, it's sort of like, they're, they're people that I know, and they're not literally based on real life people, but they're very much alive in my mind. And so the trick for me is making the plot work. I sort of know the starting point. I know that Joe is being blackmailed. Um, to be honest, when I started writing the book, um, and I don't think it's too spoilery to, to say this, but, um, you know, the reader has a sense of Joe having had a terrible background. And just in brief, uh, without spoilers, I'll say that her parents are dead. She came to New York um, as, a teen as a teenager looking for um, a relative who was living there to sort of help her out and who she thought would take care of her. And this relative actually um, ended up trafficking her. And so the complicated thing, though, was that while there's all this um, sort of ugly evidence that surfaces of Joe's history of being trafficked, that's a crime in which she's a victim. And so I had to really dig deep to think like, well, what would be worse? What would be the thing that, you know, she would not be able to deal with other people finding out about her? What could she really be blackmailed over? Um, but yeah, but in terms of character, that's really where the story comes from, because a lot of the plot developments are organic. I've tried outlining. I always am upfront about this. I'm a failed outliner, because if I just think in terms of plot, uh, the characters feel very wooden, and it's kind of like you're forcing somebody to do something that doesn't come naturally to them, whereas when I let it sort of develop 
organically from sort of knowing the characters and their relationship to each other, um, it feels like the plot kind of flows from that. And so there's an incredible tension between the characters where you've got, um, you know, the boyfriend's mother hates Joe, um, looks at her as this sort of seedy, low-life person, not because of anything Joe has done since meeting her, but because she had a private investigator dig into her background, which, you know, does does not, um, not a kind thing to do, not a nice thing to do to anybody, gives you some sense of the kind of person that this, this woman is. Um, but it's that sort of, you know, layers of character. And part of the, the fun part of writing this book, honestly, was like the kind of class warfare aspect of it, because the people who, um, you might describe as being kind of at the pinnacle. You know, you describe Cal as to the manner born, but you also mentioned his father going to jail because his father went down in a horrible financial scandal. And, you know, the, the people, you know, in the book, whatever level they're at, they're all kind of fighting for survival. They're fighting to keep their place. They're fighting to move up. And part of that, um, for some of the characters, means keeping other characters down and very deliberately, like, pushing other people down so they have someone to stand on top of. So that dynamic is very much a part of the book and part of the characters in the book. Well, and we talked about this last time when we talked about One Small Sacrifice. You've been very upfront with your own experience with uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I felt like that made its way into this book too, especially with Joe. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. No, it, it did because I mean, and this was, this is very real for a lot of people who have gone through, um, sort of a sexual trauma. I mean, in her case, it's extreme because of being trafficked, but she does have PTSD from that. And it comes out in ways that maybe, um, aren't obviously connected. She has claustrophobia. She has headaches that she gets. Um, you know, she has anxiety and sort of panic disorder and, you know, she tries to deal with that with self-medicating, with drinking, for instance. And, you know, so that was definitely a, a side of the character. It's more subtle maybe than it was in the first book, but you're absolutely right that it's there. Well, she's pathologically uh, afraid of her past uh, being trafficked coming out, although, as you said, she is a victim. She's not a perpetrator. And right. logically... Uh, she should have no fear of this. Um, it's, what happened to her was tragic and, and definitely not her fault. So I think that might be another um, demonstration of how the PTSD she has is manifesting itself. Right. Though there is, in terms of the evidence against her, there is, you know, sort of her being trafficked, which, like you say, she's a victim. And so these nude photographs and things like that are... Uh, you know, evidence basically of just how she was harmed. But, you know, in that situation, um, and again, I'm thinking, how can I say this carefully without being too spoilery? But um, she certainly in protecting herself um, may have done some violent things. And that's part of what was captured and what she's, she's almost, um, you know, just sort of struck with fear of like, 
this side of her being revealed. I don't think she's even thinking so much about legal consequences or anything like that. It's almost like I am a different person. I am not a person who would do this. And her whole self image is really, um, would kind of fall apart if this came out, because this is like a more savage kind of feral, you know, side of her. And again, like you said, you know, she was a victim. This comes from that. But um, for her, it's sort of a, um, for someone who's been looked down on all her life and who's been treated as subhuman, it kind of brings her back into feeling that way and feeling like everyone is um, judging her and sort of looking at her as less than. And so it's just sort of like she can't process that emotionally. Um, I want to change tax uh, attack a little bit and, and talk about, you know, writers and their characters have come under some scrutiny re- recently. And I don't really want to relitigate that particular discussion. But you've written a cast of characters, many of whom don't resemble you. Um, your characters may be fictional, but and you even mentioned this, they exist in the universe, so they're real. So how do you approach that task and tell their story and stay respectful to their experience? Yeah, that's such a great question because that is a really, um, you know, it's an issue that I think has been bubbling up for a while and has really been discussed a lot in the past couple of months. And I think it's a good discussion to have because there's kind of a history of people feeling that as a creative person, you can invent any character that you want. And it's true that a writer has the freedom to do that, but sometimes they're also weighing these characters down with stereotypical portrayals. They're sort of perpetuating these um, unhealthy ideas. And just because you have the freedom to write whatever you want doesn't mean that this should be a vehicle for stereotypes or kind of um, yeah, sort of unflattering, you know, portrayals. I, I feel like I really have the, the sort of greatest advantage in terms of where I grew up. I grew up in Toronto, which is, I think, um, still called the most multicultural city in the world. And um, just, you know, have kind of a background where, um, you know, I, like my family's from all over, um, new people from all over, people who'd come to Canada as refugees, people who uh, were very wealthy, who came to Canada, who emigrated in a different way. Um, it, it was the sort of thing where, though, I was just exposed to so many different friends, so many different cultures. And that's definitely always been reflected in my books. Um, even back when my first book came out in 2010, I remember people talking about um, the portrayal of Muslim characters and kind of how um, sort of, I guess, people felt like they hadn't seen that in a lot of books, which felt very strange to me because I always think, what people are you hanging out with? Like, are they all like you? Um, But that said, there are certainly um, areas that I would um, not write about. Like, I feel comfortable writing about certain types of characters because I know people like that. Um, I don't feel that I could just write sort of any kind of character from any part of the world. And also there's a difference when you're writing um, about characters in a city like New York or Toronto or somewhere where you have different cultures mixing. I wouldn't myself feel comfortable um, writing a book that was set in another country unless it was from the point of view of, say, 
Um, when I was writing the Lily Moore series, there is a book that takes place in Peru, but it's written from the point of view of a travel writer from America, you know, looking at the country. And I think knowing where you stand is really important. Trying to um, write a novel that encapsulates another culture uh, is just such a humongous, you know, task to to take on. So I think people can succeed when they focus on the characters and when they know the characters and when, uh, this is such an awkward thing to say, but if you have to go out and do research about the kind of people that you're writing about, maybe you shouldn't be writing about those people right now. Maybe if you don't know enough real people to talk to and you're looking at them as research subjects, maybe that's not the best sort of um, character for you to write. It's very individual, and I would never want to tell someone that they don't have the right to write a particular character. But I think that um, people are doing a disservice if it's not really an honest, authentic, um, realistic betrayal. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's just, I guess, a lot to, to say about it, and I'm so glad you mentioned it. But, um, you know, it is a complicated issue, and I think writers are still finding their footing around it. Well, you, you mentioned this uh, when you, uh, you touched on this, and that is viewpoint. And, and like the first book in this series, the story is told from multiple viewpoints. And what I think of as a kaleidoscopic approach, and where yeah. we see fragments of the story, and they don't click together until the end. And, and just as... As a, as a writer, as well as a reader, I, I'm always wondering if that's a difficult way to craft a book. Do you write all of Sharon's point of view and then switch to Joe's point of view and then uh, Ray, Raph's point of view? Or do you write it in a more linear fashion? And it must be so hard to keep track of it in your head. <laughs> it is. I, I will not lie. When I wrote the first book in the series, um, I actually didn't think of it as a series at the time. I wrote it as a standalone and it was the toughest book that I'd ever written. And it was because of having the multiple viewpoints. And, you know, it's such a tricky way to write because you have to have the plot flowing along. The timeline has to be seamless. Everything has to be like clockwork and you're moving through different characters' heads. And honestly, at the end of that, I sort of sat back and said, like, whew, glad I don't have to do that again. <laughs> and uh, then my my editor, um, or the, the woman who became my editor, said, um, you know, I, I love this. Would you be willing to write a series like this? And uh, it didn't involve changing one small sacrifice in any way. There was no change to the end of, to the characters or anything like that. But I did think, like, my goodness, I am, you know, definitely uh, hoping... My brain is big enough for the task. Um, I love telling the story this way, though. And my first drafts are linear. So my first drafts are really focused on um, sort of I, I have a sense of knowing the characters and um, kind of figuring out the details of the plot. I know where I'm starting and I have a sense of where I'm going. Like I do know the to- sort of beginning and end points. It's all the stuff in between that I don't know. And so um, in the first linear draft, I'm focusing on getting the story down. And it's in the drafts after that, that I will go back and just work on all of Sharon's chapters or all of Joe's chapters or all of Raphael's chapters um, or Cal's chapters. That's the other perspective character in the book. 
because um, when I'm just writing as um, for the story and doing the plot, there's a tendency to make them sound the same and to not be thinking about the details and nuance of that character. And so I really have to go back and kind of fine tune. Once I get the story down, then it goes back to, okay, in this character section, there's no way they would ever, you know, use this language or think of something this way. That's not their point of reference. And so I actually have to go back and rethink everything uh, sort of through the prism of each character. So it's a process because after I do that, I have to go back and put it all together and make sure that the plot is sort of ticking along the way it should. And so there's a lot of back and forth with it. Um, but it does, it feels like the payoff is that normally when a reader picks up a book, whatever perspective they have in front of them is usually the sort of side that they take. If the book is, you know, written from the point of view of a private investigator, they're on the side of that private investigator. If it's on the point of view of a criminal, it kind of, I always think of like watching Breaking Bad, you're kind of on the, you know, on the side of Walter White when you're, when you're watching that, even though he's a criminal. So one of the interesting challenges with this is that you're showing the really key perspectives and giving everybody their due. And it matters because um, just for instance, with Sharon and Raphael, who are both wonderful characters, they are good people, they're good cops. Um, but there's a conflict between them in this book. In the last book, Raphael was badly injured by an explosion that happened near the end of the book. And in this book, he's just come back um, to the job recently um, he is not fully recovered. He can you know, walk, talk, move around, but he's using a cane, moving more slowly. He has symptoms he doesn't really want to talk about. He's got ringing in his ears, um, you know, headaches. Like he's, he's uncomfortable in the situation that he's in, but he feels a sense of duty and wants to be doing his job. And from Sharon's point of view, she's deeply sympathetic. She cares about her partner. At the same time, she's frustrated when he slows her down. And because they work out of Hell's Kitchen, where a lot of, a bu a lot of the buildings don't have elevators, um, they're forced to, for instance, walk up to the fourth floor just to see the crime scene um, early on in the book. And every time they go back there, it's you know walking up these stairs, going to interview a witness you know across the street, walking up more stairs. And there's this kind of um, tension that develops between them where you know, Sharon is just sort of like, how about you do desk duty, you know, for a while? And, you know, in the sort of macho cop culture, that's really uh, kind of a something nobody ever wants to do. Nobody ever wants to be put on desk duty. And so there's, there's this kind of two sides of the story that are both valid and both um, fair when you consider the person's perspective. But w if I weren't telling the story this way, you'd never be able to see them. You'd be biased in favor of whatever version, you know, whatever character was telling you the story that you hear. Well, now that you've perfected this method of oh. <laughs> writing... I will quote you on that. <laughs> I, I'm working on another book I, now from multiple I can see it as the next. <laughs> I can see it as a cover line. Um, Hillary Davidson has per perfected this uh, method of of telling a story. Um, I'm hoping that there will be more books with uh, Sharon and Raph. Um, so I was hoping maybe you could tell us what's up. What's next? 
what's next? So actually, hilariously, I got uh, the idea for the third book in the series just as I was finishing Don't Look Down, which um, I was so excited about. Um, All I can say is that it involves a cold case. But my next book, um, we were also at the same time in negotiations with my publisher about, um, you know, what I was about my next book deal. And I had been really excited uh, about a, a standalone idea because I always feel like you can do things in a standalone you can't do when you have series characters. Anyone who picks up the Shadows of New York series, they know that Sharon Sterling is a good cop and, you know, she's going to do right. And she's going to be there at the end of the book. She's not, you know, going anywhere. So with a standalone, though, you know, it's open season on anyone. Everyone is fair game and you don't know what's going to happen. So I've gotten really excited about an idea that I had and my publisher got really excited about it too. And so instead of my next book being the series book that I'd started writing, it's actually going to be a psychological thriller that is a standalone. I don't have a title yet. I can tell you it'll be out in the summer of 2021. Um, but yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise. I, I was delighted that they got that excited about the idea, but it kind of mentally, I was in the mode to do a third series book and then switch to a standalone and they ended up switching it up on me. Well, either way, I'm very much looking forward to anything that is uh, coming. I'm sorry we have to wait until summer of 2021, but (laughs) I know how long it takes to write a book. So I I appreciate that. Well, thank you. And if it's any consolation, I am planning to bring the Lily Moore books back into print. Um, I got the rights back to them from Macmillan a couple of years back, and I have been very bad. I've been intending just to sort of do a light edit of the books and uh, release them again, but that'll be happening in the next few months. So there will be some some more reading, at least, for people who haven't um, seen my earlier books. Oh, well, more writing, literally and figuratively. <laughs> Hillary, thanks again for for taking the time and talking to us. I know you must be very busy with the launch of this book, and uh, it's uh, and we should mention that even though it's the second in a series, it's very much readable without having read the first one. Yes, that, thank you for mentioning that. People ask that um, a lot, and I can tell you, number one, it is intent. It's written as a standalone. You don't need to know the characters in advance. Um, three of the four perspective characters that's new that their perspective is, is in this book. So you're not missing anything by not reading the first book. Um, and I also don't give spoilers about what happens in the first book. So one thing I've always struggled with in mysteries is sometimes people give all the details about a prior case and I want the surprise to still be there. So you could read this first and go back to the earlier book if you want, either way, it's fine. It is such a delight to speak with you though. And, um, honestly, this is the fun part of my job. Most of the year, I'm just sort of at my desk typing away with my imaginary friends so this is the fun part thank you so much well thank you for making it fun on my end and uh, until next year that's great (laughs) thanks nancy 